This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name is Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. Do you know that feeling of having a dream only to pursue it and a week, a month, six months, a year, two years later, you lose focus, you get frustrated, you don't see the results, and you stop enjoying the actual pursuit of what you really wanted to do. You lose track of why you even wanted it and you quit. I was fortunate to interview Peter Murphy, who is a very talented author. He's been writing for most of his life. He's published so many books and he really talked about the simple philosophy of falling in love with the process. And it sounds easy, but it's really not. And after having the success that he's had to still be getting up every morning and just purely enjoying the pursuit of writing and having that discipline to do it. I found it so inspiring and it's clear to me why he's had the success that he's had and why he is mentoring so many people in this field. He was born in Wales and grew up in New York where he operated heavy equipment, managed a nightclub and drove a cab. He's the author of 11 books and chapbooks of poetry and praise, including two books of writing prompts challenges for the delusional and more challenges for the delusional more than a dozen excerpts of his memoir in progress next have been published as standalone pieces in literary magazines including looking for thelma the winner of the 2018 wilt Nonfiction chapbook prize the founder of murphy writing of stockton university peter has received dozens of awards and fellowships and has led hundreds of workshops for writers and teachers Really excited to share this interview with you. Once again, thank you for supporting Move Your Mind. And another reminder that the Move Your Mind book is now available globally. All of the links can be found at nickbrax.com slash book. And you can join the Move Your Mind community by going to moveyourmind.me. Peter, thank you for making the time uh, to come on my podcast. After me standing you up, I've uh, I've actually, would have been a lot easier probably just to do this when I was in New York in, in the same time zone, but um, I've been back in Australia and I was I was actually sound asleep when we were trying to do the previous one, uh, but, but I'm glad we actually got to do it, um, been adjusting to the time zones. I've been stood, I've been stood up by prettier people than you are, so I'm a, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. So, so at least I haven't haven't offended you too much. But no, well, you've still come and you come and done the the interview. So, um, no, I appreciate it, mate. Um, I guess before we before we get into it, to, are you able to just give a bit of a background for our listeners on on yourself? I mean, you've done so much. So, a bit of a background on how you um got to where you are now. Sure. Uh, just as a, a real overview of the life, I was born in Wales. Uh, I was a war baby, and my uh, family moved to New York City when I was about two or three. Uh, that's where I grew up. 
I uh, had a tumultuous childhood, which uh, I didn't realize was so strange at the time. I thought everybody went through that kind of stuff until I became an adult. Um, I flunked out of three colleges uh, in a row and eventually graduated from college number five after I got sober. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but um, I realized I was always a writer. I always loved writing poetry, and I decided maybe I can teach kids to write poetry. And I got myself a job teaching um, uh, English and creative writing in Atlantic City on the coast of New Jersey here. And I did that for 30 years. And then it grew and I started uh, teaching adults as well. So um, about 30 years ago, I started Murphy Writing Seminars. That was a private business. And uh, we ran um, large conferences, weekend conferences, tutoring, et cetera, et cetera. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And now as part of a local university, we were acquired by Stockton University um, of New Jersey about uh, 10 years ago. And, um, so that's, uh, that's the brief story. I've written poems. Wow. I've written, um, uh, I have about 11 books and chapbooks of poetry and prose, including a couple of books on writing craft. And uh, I think uh, most of my writing, I think has been in small literary journals and, uh, around, uh, mostly in the United States, a bunch in Britain, some in Canada. Um, I don't know about Australia. I don't think I have anything in Australia. Uh, but that, that's a brief thing of who I am. Oh, one note I have to pick on you, uh, you Australian people. Uh, there is apparently a poet in Australia who's well-known named Peter Murphy. And he's also, uh, I guess, anthologized widely because I have received over the years um, lots of requests from students uh, asking me to talk about my poem, The Burning House. Uh, and I had to look it up and say, well, this was written by a different Peter Murphy. And uh, as a result of that, I now use my name, Peter E. Murphy. <laughs> so as a way to try to distinguish myself from that Peter Murphy. And then there's another Peter Murphy. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of them. There's one in Ireland. There's another one, actually, that just moved to local Philadelphia. So I have to be careful. Maybe I should trademark my name or something. I don't know. But anyway, so if Peter Murphy, the Australian poet, is alive <laughs> and listening to any of his students, um, I like your poem, The Burning House, but I didn't write it. And uh, I hope that uh, that you're well. Yeah. Wow, that's um. I mean, that's funny, isn't it? It would be yeah, get really confusing. So anyone listening, this is this is the the, the Peter E. Murphy in in Atlantic City, and we're going to talk about the books that you've done and and all those and where you can actually go to to get it. But um, yeah, I guess like you would need to to make sure that you know there's a distinguish between between the two. Um, but yeah, it really does sound like it's crazy how much you've done and accomplished and how many books you've written what's the the process like is that hard to stay self-motivated do you have to um does doubt come into it at, at points because i'm imagining you would have to just be spending a lot of time like just really um disciplining yourself to to do the work you do yeah i um good thing i'm a loner <laughs> I spend, uh, so much of my time writing is alone and um, i did uh, most of my writing in hotel rooms before the pandemic hit um, and um, I would go away for, um, first of all, in the summers, I would go to artist colonies, and uh, that was wonderful. And in the summertime, uh, when that was over, then I would rent a hotel room uh, every now and then, and every week, sorry, every month for a few days, I would write. And that's how I wrote most of the poems uh, and most of the essays that I published. Now, when COVID hit and I couldn't go to hotel rooms, I had to establish a whole new practice. And this required some negotiation with my wife, who is a wonderful woman and loves me too much. Um, so I have a, my little studio downstairs. I would come down here at five in the morning. And, uh, the thing is that she's not allowed to bother me till either 10 o'clock in the morning or till I go upstairs. Um, and that way I get my writing done in the morning at home. And I try to make believe I'm in a hotel room. Um, but my part of the agreement is once I go upstairs, I can't come back down to write again. I'm done for the day. So 
We've, we've uh, been around a long time, so we've worked that out. So that's how I practice. But I write every day. Um, I wasn't able to write every day when I was teaching full-time, but I'm retired, semi-retired now, so I, I'm able to keep it up. But uh, it's probably the one of the most important things in my life is writing. It's kept me sane over the years. It got me sane when I was in my crazy years. I think everybody goes to have some crazy years, and I was lucky that um, uh, writing, particularly writing poetry, um, you know, got me through it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that sounds... That technique makes sense, I guess, because doing something like that where you have to be creative, you need to be able to focus. If you if you sort of aren't blocking out like what you're saying, you know, when you're at home and just locking yourself away, if you don't do that, I guess it would be too easy to get distracted in the day-to-day mechanics of life and sort of be pulled in and out and you just wouldn't you wouldn't be able to keep up the the sort of endeavour of doing it. And I think that's probably from what, what I've seen and, I, I mean, I'm sure with the work you're doing and working with students and mentoring people, um, for, for me, it seems like one of the hardest things in this day and age is to have the ability to be able to or have the discipline and ability to be able to focus for periods because, you know, our minds are getting taken into 20 different directions. When do you actually make the time to go and sit and do the actual work? And that's, that's, I think that's a problem for a lot of people now. No, it is. It is. And, um, then the hard part happens when you're actually there. <laughs> you're, you're facing a blank computer screen or a piece of paper. Um, and, you know, what happens? And all of a sudden you have to do something. So um, I give myself a low bar and I basically allow myself to write as badly as I can. Um, and um, I write a lot of bad stuff. Um, so that's, uh, but occasionally, and, uh, you know, it's not so bad. And I revise a lot. I'm working on uh, a poem now that I um, is in its 77th draft, I think, over a period of years. Um, I refound it. I discovered it recently, and uh, I came back to it. So uh, that, to me, is where the uh, the pleasure is, taking something I thought was dead and then reviving it and making it something that's interesting. Because um, if it's not interesting to me, it's not going to be interesting to anybody else. And <laughs> it doesn't mean it will be interesting to anybody else. It probably won't be, but it has to at least interest me before it'll go out there for someone else. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and I love that idea of just going there and not not ha- putting pressure on whether it has to be good or not because I think that can be, for anything creative, it can be a real hindrance, can't it, if you're telling yourself that it has to come out in a certain way or it has to be a certain quality, you're not going to really do anything. And it's just, yeah, I think that's such a good point. There's a, a definition of writer's block that I like. Um, uh, so... Uh, where um, two two poets were talking and one said he wrote, he wrote every day. The other one said, don't you get writer's block? And the other one said, no. And the first said, why not? And he says, I lower my standards. Um, And so to me, the definition of writer's block, and I think this probably works in all of the arts is that you're setting yourself up to a higher standard. You're able to do at that time. And uh, I think a lot of people just stop because they get frustrated. I keep going. And, um, if it's not going the way I plan it to be, then I try writing yep. in a way I have planned it to be, whether it's a prose or poetry or my life, I guess. <laughs> and and would you say it's about also not having sort of a um, an end goal of what has to happen, you know, rather not thinking that I have to achieve blah, blah, blah by this point or I have to have this much success through it? Is it more about just I'm going to do it, this is what I do, you know, I'm going to keep doing it forever. There's no end point to this because I, I think when, when we're saying that we have to um, have a certain level of success or wanting certain outcomes, it can put so much pressure on us that we don't actually stick to doing it. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, as I said, it's uh, I will continue doing it as long as I can. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, that's it's it's I guess part of my life. That's um, it's like having coffee or having a meal. You know what? I didn't write today. What's wrong? Let me go back. <laughs> Got you. Yeah. 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 Um, so can you tell me about the, the crazy years, what was happening in those years and how did you get through those? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the thing. I, I described my life, um, my younger life, uh, when I was in high school, I described that as early derelict period. Um, and I started, um, drinking and doing drugs when I was about 15, uh, just horsing around. But then by the time I was 17, it was pretty serious. I was drunk pretty much every day when I was in high school, I managed somehow to, to, uh, to graduate. And then, as I think I may have said earlier, uh, when I got to college, I flunked out, flunked out of another one, flunked out of another one, and then decided, uh, I call this period after high school as mid-derelict period, um, and I decided to be near what I love, so I went to work at a bar for a few years, um, which was not a good idea. And then um, uh, I mentioned I was born in Wales. I got in a lot of trouble, and I just needed to go somewhere and hide out, and I didn't know where to go, so I said, let me go back to Wales. I didn't know anything about it. I left when I was three. And when I got to Wales, I realized nobody in the entire country knew what a screw up I was. And I decided to stay. So I went for a few weeks and I stayed almost a year. And I described mm. that as late derelict period. Um, uh, mm. And uh, I finally, uh, I guess I had about, <laughs> I, I woke up in a gutter in Cardiff, Wales, outside the house I was living in. It was a commune. And um, I had peed myself. It was raining. And it was, uh, I was 21 years old. And it was like, um, I have to change my life. This isn't working. And um, I made some uh, decisions and um, managed not to drink again. Um, I had a lot of help. And then I made, I wrote to my family in America, my father and stepmother, and, uh, you know, asked them to take me back <laughs> and came back to the States and uh, tried to, um, I guess, try to be a better person. Yeah. And um, I continued to write and the poetry and the writing kept, kept, I guess, being the focus, something I could really... Um, hold on to as I was doing that. And as I mentioned earlier, that's how I was able to find a career is that um, I read a book called Wishes, Lies, and Dreams by a poet named Kenneth Koch. And it was about teaching poetry writing to kids. I said, I think I want to do that. I want to teach poetry writing to kids. And that, that also focused me. Um, what I didn't know, I, I mentioned, um, I didn't know my life was so different than anybody else's. I was mm. abused by a priest um, when I was 11 years old for about a year. Mm. And um what happened is he would uh, we'd go to the rectory every Saturday morning to pick up newspapers I was supposed to deliver, the parish newspaper, and he would wrestle with me every week. And uh, then he started wrestling dirty. And I figured there was something wrong with me because he was a priest. He couldn't be doing this, you know, if he was that. And I thought I was going to go to hell. And um, so I would go to pick up my papers and we'd be, you know, he would be abusing me in the morning. And that afternoon I'd be going confessing my sins to him in the afternoon. Um and I didn't understand it. I was too young. But a few years later, uh, when I began to learn more about the world and learn more about this other stuff, that's when I realized what had happened to me, what he was doing. And that's around the time when I was 15, when I started drinking. And um, that was a big thing. The other is that my mother died when I was young. Mm. She died when I was seven. And that uh, set my life into a kind of downfall because I got moved around to different families. And... Um, mm. That was also a, a big blow because uh, the stability, whatever stability I had in my life was, was left. Uh, so I, I wound up going to different schools in different neighborhoods, um, living at a home where uh, it was, uh, I was physically abused, you know, just brutally. Um, and uh, I thought that was normal. I didn't think there was anything wrong with that until I was much older looking back. 
I was trying to figure out why was why was I so screwed up as a kid? And I was like, oh, well, maybe that's something to do with it. <laughs> so I'm lucky in that um, yeah. <laughs> the first twenty years of twenty years of my life were, were pretty um, rubbish. But then I was able to, um, I guess, be inspired and turn it around. And um, the last, uh, I'm going to show you how old I am. The last 50 years have been pretty good. Uh, in fact, just in uh, this past uh, March, I hit my 50th anniversary of sobriety. Um, and not many people can do that. Uh, Mate, well, congratulations on that. That's that's incredible. I mean, 50 years, yeah, like you said, it's such a tough thing to do. And it's an amazing achievement and yeah thank you for sharing that as as well i mean that's um some really confronting and difficult things to have gone through and i mean that that really can affect people in in ways where they don't you know recover from it so i think it's incredible that you are able to talk about it and you've also been able to to work through these you know childhood traumas that you had to deal with and, and come out and do something so positive with with your life i think it's 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 such a good example to to people that we you know can do that because it's, i i can't even imagine how you know how difficult and confusing that all would would have been for you yeah well i like the title of your broadcast and i guess of your books as well move your mind because that's what it is in a sense it's um not allowing at a certain point in my life deciding not to be moved but to make that decision to move my mind, to move my spirit, my soul, mm. my life in a direction that's going to be more positive, a direction that rather than um, looking at the world as uh, you know a foe, woe is me, the world is terrible, looking as a place where maybe I can make a difference, uh, make a, how I can serve others in some way. And I think that was a big turnaround when I started thinking about how I can do stuff for other people rather than for myself. That was a big turnaround because then I, you know, mm -hmm. I realized so many other people have it so much worse. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, what do I have to worry about it? You know, so that was a big part of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good point. And, and I, I know I found the same thing when I sort of, whenever I found myself getting too caught up in my own mind or too obsessing too much about different things or spiraling, going back to trying to just simply, how can I help other people? How can I learn from other people? And it really does help. It's crazy how much. I think it's sort of what we're all probably meant to do. You know, we're meant to help each other. And when you learn from other people and see what other people are going through, it gives you perspective on your own life as well. And and it it just, you know, it makes you feel good to be able to help other people. And, and it, it, it it's what the world needs. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's something that, uh, as I said, it's been my motivating force <laughs> so much not that i go out of my way i'm not not helping people out of the gutter and stuff like that but just by serving it it has different meanings uh, teaching is a way of service um and then um, you know just sharing what what you can and uh, actually by writing when i lead writing workshops uh, for adults one of the things i say is that uh, you're changing the world when you write something you're bringing something into the world some language some words that have never been put together in that way before and um, when you do this uh, mm. without an ego, it's a way, I think, of transforming the world in some way because it transforms you and then you will in turn be transformed for others. I mean, it sounds corny. It's like, ooh, uh, very 60-ish, but, but I believe it. I believe that's why it happens. And I think that's why it's successful in the workshops that I do. It's a 10-year anniversary of Underbracks and we've relaunched with the classic white pair 
We've also got new styles coming out super soon. We're donating a dollar from every pair to mental health, currently to one in five. You can find all of this at www.underbracks.com. Well, yeah, and you're you're putting something out into the world that that it really needs. You know, we don't we we need more. We need we need people like you doing what you're doing to help people. You know, feel things and think about things from different perspectives. And you know, I think art and um, anything in that area is just you know anything creativity is so important, more, more important than ever in the world we live in now when things are you know so fast paced. We've over consuming in the information we absorb we um you know cap it's such a capitalistic sort of mindset a lot of the time and you know what's next and how can i just acquire more and all that kind of thing so i mean is that something that sort of drives you as well seeing uh just you know how much the world really needs needs this sort of stuff yeah and that whole idea of like um how much can i get you mentioned capitalism, so I have a lot of feelings on that. Um, I just never understood that. You know, just uh, what? Yeah, you know, yeah. What's your view on that? Yeah, uh, what is enough? I mean, I think you know, I, I just look at um, the extremes of wealth, uh, especially in this country, United States, and the extremes of poverty. And um, I don't think people with extreme wealth would suffer very much by sharing a lot of what they had with those who have so little. Um, I think that uh, there'd, there'd still be plenty to go around. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that as somebody who's very comfortable, but I try to do that again, not just in my writing, but also, um, you know, contribute, contributing to what I can financially um, and serving, as I mentioned that, but, but it's a, that's a big thing. I think, um, you know, it's that old song from the Burt Bacharach song from the sixties, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. I don't think we see each other as a community uh, in the world. Uh, and I very much believe that, um, one of the things that helped me pull me out of that gutter is um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Baha'i faith, um, but I had met some Baha'is in Ireland a few months before I wound up in that gutter and uh, got in touch with some Baha'is in Wales. And um, I couldn't believe how kindly they were treating me because I was, you know, I was living in this commune. I was, hair was long. I was dirty. And they treated me like I was an important person. And one of the things they said is that um, in the Baha'i faith art, is raised to the spirit of uh, of prayer, of services. It's a service like that. And that gave me the confidence that what I was writing was able to do that. Um, but it also, the Baha'i Faith also mm. talks about the extremes of wealth and poverty, that they have to be eliminated. Uh, and uh, there's plenty to go around, but not if not if we're hoarding it. And I'm not saying that we should get guns and you know mm. take people's houses from them. I don't mean that at all. But I think we need to develop a way of... Um, a system, a systematic, systemic way of just that. Um, I sound like Robin Hood here. Forgive me. <laughs> Sharing more with those that don't have it, and I'm willing to do mine. <laughs> I, I don't complain about taxes. I'm probably the only person I know is like, oh, I don't mind, because <laughs> look what it's doing. My roads in this, where I live, are good, good roads. I love having people take my trash away. Yeah, I'll pay the taxes to do this. I'll also pay the taxes to help those that don't have enough, because that's that's what you do. You know, that's that's what life is about. Oh, one hundred percent, and and like yeah. you're saying, you know, it's it, yeah, it's selfish, and 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 I, I think imagine if we we were sort of oh, sorry, you go, you go. I was going to say it's selfish because I'm getting so much out of it. <laughs> that's why I said that's selfish, not in a way that I want more, but the more I do, 
you know, it's corny, but you know, it makes me it makes me better. It makes me feel better and a better person. Look, I I was literally having that conversation yesterday with with someone, um, and we were talking about exactly what you're saying now. Where I was saying, um, and he does, he's got motor neuron disease, and he is dedicating his life to raising awareness about it. And we're actually working together at the moment, um, making a documentary, and it's sort of got mm-hmm. mental health themes and so much of what he's doing now. He's become in Australia really prominent in getting his message out there and. We were both talking about. It. I said exactly what you said, and he totally agreed. Where, um, you know, I've, I've had my own own struggles, and when I fell into talking about mental health, like ten years ago, when I started just going on a stage sharing my story, I was like, "Wow, this this is helping people, but it's making me feel good, and I want to keep doing it." And and you know, on a selfish level, it makes you feel really good. And and I always try and say to people, you should try and do things that can help others from a selfish level because that's going to motivate you to keep doing it and that's actually going to help people and that's going to be then encouraging them to do the same and if we all look at it that way that's a very positive you know outcome for everyone definitely one of the features of 12-step programs is telling your story and uh, the telling of it makes you stronger and when other people hear your story it makes them stronger too and that's um that's that's i think what you're talking about um Another part of that is um, the stranger that we think we think we're strange because of particular things that happen. But the stranger we are, the more particular we are, the more universal that becomes. Um, and you know, we think that you know, in order to resonate with other people, we have to tell a broad story. But no, as you were saying when you were telling your story, I'm sure it's very particular. We don't happen to you, it didn't happen to other people, and that's why people responded because. It was so recognizable, even though they didn't experience it, because they understand it. Yeah, I mean, on a universal level, we're all we're, we're we're all similar. On a you know, we all have our own. We all think that we're unique in our suffering, or that you know, what's wrong with me? Why do I struggle with certain things? When the reality is, everyone has their own concerns. Everyone has their own ups and downs, and things that they need to deal with. And I think the more we can actually communicate and, you know, show vulnerability, share stories, the more we can all make sense of, of the world and, and, you know, and help each other. Yeah. You mentioned a keyword story and uh, we're narrative people. Yeah. I think our brains are wired for that. And I think that's an important part of it. Um, I love stories <laughs> too much. Um, tell me your story. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And then when right. I, I, it, as I said, it, it makes me understand my life a little bit better too. But uh, yeah, I'm always, if I'm like doing housework or walking or watering the lawn, I'm always listening to audiobooks because I can I can do other stuff while listening to other people's stories like that. Mm. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I mean, everything I'm doing, when I break it down at all, similar thing, it's all, that's what I'm really obsessed about. I just want to, um, you know, learn from other people's stories and also, I guess that's what I realized because I was confused a few years back. I was like, oh God, I'm doing all these different things. I'm advocating for mental health, trying to build an acting. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Career, I'm, you know, writing a book, I'm, uh, I'm doing a podcast, I'm trying to grow my mental health company and get programs out into the world. But then I looked at all of it and I was like, hang on, what's the core thing I'm trying to do here? And every single aspect of it, really, if you boil it down, it's just storytelling. You know, it, mm-hmm. it all comes down to that one thing. I just want to share stories, whether it is through interviewing you, whether it is through writing a book, whether it's through acting in a part or whatever. Um, so, yeah, sh- definitely share that with you. I think it's just such a powerful thing. I think it's one of the oldest forms of learning, you know, people at the very beginning in caveman times, you'd be around a fire, you know, telling stories in some some format. Um, it's the way we learn. It's built into us. That's how we sort of, I think it's how we relate and how we connect with each other through story. Yeah. And there's that famous line, in the beginning was the word, right? <laughs> no, yeah. No, stories from, uh, you know, the Bible, the uh, yeah. Old Testament, myths <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. So we, we continue to do it. it. It allows us to make meaning. And I think meaning is so important because uh, that's why, as humans, I'm not sure about other animals, probably, maybe, but I just don't know. But we're, we are meaning-seeking people. We want to understand uh, it's a strange world that has a lot of, you know, like lightning and thunder. And I can imagine how terrifying that must have been millions of years ago to those to our, our ancestors. But we, we have other terrifying things here in all our lives we're trying to understand, um, whether it's the natural world or the human world or the, you know, these other things. But it's also joyous too. I mean, we, we I mean, let's face it. Uh, we'd rather hear a story. Um, most most novels, most great literature is about uh, overcoming some kind of difficulty. Um, the same, I think, in movies like that. You know, when these space invaders mm. uh, attack, you know, it would be a terrible movie if they win, <laughs> if the dinosaurs finally take over. Um, but it, no, yeah. there's always some kind of uh, <laughs> victory at the end there. Um, and I think that's what we're looking for, because when we see that in other forms, then we think, oh, perhaps we can, you know, we can overcome those space invaders and dinosaurs in our own lives, which are all inside of us for the most part, I think, most, most of them. Definitely. Definitely. And um, I guess reverting back to your your own life and your, you know, I guess you're saying 50 years of being sober and, I mean, I'm sure you've had to go through. What What are some of the things you had to do to get through this and to actually, you know, be able to, and what were th- some of the things that were coming up? Because I'm, I'm sure there must've been so much trauma and so much difficulty yeah. in working through it. You know, what, what got, what got you there? Well, I, um, I had to remake my life. Um, and, uh, when I returned to the United States, um, by that point I hadn't been drinking for about a month or two. And um, I couldn't go back to the bar where I was working. That uh, that was just seemed like a really bad idea. So I got a job driving a cab in Manhattan. You were you were in New York recently in Manhattan. So I was one of those yellow cab drivers for a while. And then I worked construction for a while. Um, and mm-hmm. I was doing uh, you know these physical jobs that I was used to. I didn't think I had any capacity to do anything more than manual labor. Um, but that's when I um I was trying to just um, hold on, literally hold on. Let me also be very honest. I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. I didn't, I've never heard the word. I heard of drunks. A lot of people in my family were drunks, but I never thought of myself as an alcoholic because that sounded so clinical, so medical. And it wasn't until years later, and I was saying, um, 
I was probably sober 15 years before I went to my first 12-step meeting. Um, and that's because I was, I was uh, in, a, in a, a situation where I desperately wanted to drink um, for a period of time. And I met somebody who told me about AA and about what an alcoholic is. And I said, oh, that's me. I didn't know that. I thought that that was other people. And that was a big awareness mm -hmm. on my mind is that once I realized that, that also became part of my understanding, my family, my childhood and everything else like that. Um, I just thought I was somebody who couldn't drink and, um, mm -hmm. you know, couldn't drink anymore like that. But I knew I couldn't. That was the, that was the thing. And at uh, that point, uh, when I was, I guess, about 35, 36 year old, was a turning point also, because then I started talking about it, I started writing about it. None of my people, none of my, my wife didn't even know the situation that, um, that I that I had when I was younger. She knew I, I drank, but she didn't know the extent. Um, none of my uh, new friends and my new life knew any of this. And I was ashamed of it. That's why. I mean, you wake up in the gutter. It's not something like, hey, I go around, hey, guess what? <laughs> guess who I spent my early life? Um, but then once I realized and began to understand okay. it, it gave me power um, to embrace it and then to write about it and to, I would, I'm going to, this can sound corny, but to make art out of it in some way, to make poems about this. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that transition was that uh, when I got in trouble, I started having drinking dreams um, where um, I was, you know, they, they're pretty obvious. And I, I realized a lot of people who've been sober a while have them as well. Uh, do you mind if I read a poem about a drinking dream? Would that be okay? Thank you so much for supporting Move Your Mind. We're expanding the offerings of the organization and we're tailoring everything we do to suit you guys and to try and answer to all of your needs and the questions that you send in. The book is available globally. You can find all of the links at nickbrax.com book. And we've just released the Move Your Mind community. We've currently got a men's community group, a women's community group, a general group. We're going to be lo loading up other groups and you can find all of the links at moveyourmind.me. This group's been created based on the needs of what we've heard and learnt throughout running Move Your Mind. And we have live events, we've got courses, we've got huge amounts of value, the ability to share information, share ideas, work in groups together to, to grow and share your learnings, to learn about different topics. You get email reminders. There's a whole lot of features in there. We're constantly updating it. And we're so excited to share it with you. You can find all of the information about it at moveyourmind.me. I'd love that. That would be right. great. Um, it's, uh, let me see if I can find it here. It's, uh, as I said, I was um, sober about 15 years. And um, the town where I live in next to Atlantic City is a dry town. And it, uh, next to Atlantic City, the bars are open 24 hours. But I didn't realize I knew where every bar it was in the city. Not every bar, but I knew a whole lot of them. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night dreaming about where I could go to drink. And that scared the hell out of me. Um, this is a poem called The Desire. And it's the first of these dreams that I, I wrote about. The Desire. Last night I dreamt I was drinking again and got drunk. I walked out on the quiet life I've been living these last few years. I watched as I let my family go, the wife who understood and would not forgive, the child who clung to my loose clothing crying, don't go daddy, don't go, take mommy and me with you. I remember saying that too, grabbing the coat of my own father as he swung his arms around to touch me and I trailed him 
as he followed his father until I let go. I fell back into sleep, into dreams. There were rivers I had to cross and recross, and fires starting in every forest I came to, and cars screeching around corners, about to go off a cliff, about to crash in a desert, where I am thirsty all the time. So That's, by writing that, it thank gave you me so much kind, for writing that. Yeah, it gave me a kind of power over it um, that uh, it was no longer going to try to influence me, but now I had this power to manipulate it, and as I said, turned it into language and into poems like that. Yeah, so it's a, a way to help get it out of your head and put it onto paper and understand it, and then and then have it relinquish that power rather than having this thought circle circling in your head that you could succumb to, I guess. Yeah. And then, and then sending it out into the world where it gets published and, you know, people, That's correct. you know, responding to it, which is um, amazing. Yeah. Helping other people through art. It's, it's a, that's a beautiful thing. I think it's a, I, I think it's amazing really what you're talking about and such a beautiful thing that, um, you know, your life and your experiences have informed the poems that you're creating and then in turn there helping other people to actually understand similar problems and deal with it themselves. It's, it's, I mean, that's what it's meant to do, isn't it? That's what I think that's, that's why a lot of this is such an important, you know, thing that we have in the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Keep me honest. <laughs> so that's what I used when um, to get through that. Uh, you know, when I was in that period, like, is, is to do that. But I was still terrified. Um, and um, as I began to uh, understand um, about the, uh, you know, my early, you know, years, that that's what it was was alcoholism, and it just as I alluded to in the poem, you know, ran from my family on both sides. Um, it uh, it gave me. Um, I guess a lot more knowledge to work with as well. And uh, in my teaching over the years, particularly working with high school students, as I did for so many years, um, so many of them, you know, had similar backgrounds. Um, some were a whole lot worse. Uh, so I, I remember this one young woman I had, she mm. was a, a budding poet and uh, she missed the first three months of school. And I was like, uh, what happened when she finally came back? It turns out she had been in rehab. Um, and so we started, um, you know, talking a lot together and um, I would give her passes so she would leave school early to go to these AA meetings <laughs> around town and then come back and hit her other classes because, uh, you know, she could trust me, but she couldn't trust a lot of her other teachers to say, well, you know, I, I need to go to a meeting. I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> so that would also that was also, uh, you know, one of the, the yeah. joys that I had. Yeah. With a, I wasn't working as a counselor, an advisor, just as somebody to listen. And I learned a lot. Hey. Someone who's had that experience and can and can pass it on exactly, exactly, and that's what we need, you know, a lot of that as well. No, so I think that's. It, it, thank you for sharing all all of that. So you know, really, and I've spoken to so many people that have been through twelve um, step programs, and everyone swears by it. Is, is that something where it's just, I guess, the accountability, the the process, I guess, like you're saying, the storytelling, having other people share their stories. Has that been something you found to be of huge benefit as well? Um, 
I didn't go very long. Um, I was at when it, when that happened when I was um, mm-hmm. it was building up, but I was at an artist colony one year. It was the first artist colony I went to, a very well known place called Yaddo, and I was this budding poet. And there were these very prominent writers and artists who had published so much, and I just felt they made a mistake. I shouldn't have been, <laughs> they shouldn't have taken me in here. I didn't belong there. Uh, but then there was also a whole lot of drinking going on, and um, the pressure. I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't quite know how to do it yet, but I just was feeling so much like, um, I, I gotta, I gotta do something. I have to, um, and that's when I went to, I met somebody who was going to a meeting and they took me and I didn't go after that stay. I was there for about a month and I went, uh, probably for three weeks, almost every night. But when I got home and I was in the, um, security of my family, my Baha'i community, um, I didn't feel the need to go, the urge to go, but I always kept it open. Um, so it, uh, I, it has worked a lot for others, but mm. in a sense, the Baha'i community also gave me that because it, um, while we didn't tell stories in the same way, um, we mm. do have a kind of support where, um, you know, we're able to, to, I guess, help each other in that way. We don't have clergy, which was a big thing for me when I, as I mentioned, my abuse, being abused by a, a priest when I was younger. So when I came across the Baha'i faith and, uh, you know, didn't have a clergy, it's like, well, I don't believe in God. I believe in alcohol, but, um, uh, these guys don't have a clergy. Maybe there's something going on here. And uh, that really was a, a benefit for me. Yeah. So that made, that really was a bit of a turning point as well. Um, no, well, thank you for sharing, sharing that. And uh, you were telling me before we started, you've got a, a new memoir that you're working on and coming out. What, what projects do you have at the moment that are coming out and um, what can yeah. we share with, with my yeah. listeners? Oh, thank you. Yeah. I spent, um, I was primarily a poet, but uh, some friends said I should, I should write, I should tell my story. This goes back maybe 10, 15 years ago. So I started writing essays about my early life and uh, publishing them in various journals. And I realized, Oh my gosh, this is turning into a book. And it took me about 10 years and many, many drafts and many, many titles. And I finally finished um a memoir about those early years. It goes from the time I was, uh, you know, my early life in Wales as well as the United States till it, till I turned 21. And it's called once upon a time you lived in a castle. And, uh, it has a little literal castle in it because where I lived in Wales was a city in Newport. And we lived at a bar, of course, a pub, my family ran called the Windsor castle hotel. And, uh, it's where I started my life in this uh, alcohol, <laughs> place of alcohol. <laughs> and uh, later on, when I returned to Wales, when I was 20 years old, yeah. I spent time yeah. there and also visited it uh, years later when I got sober, just to you know go back and see what I could discover about my mother's life and my family, something like that. So it's, uh, it's um, believe it or not, it's um, humorous <laughs> when I tried to tell the story. Uh, it's not woe is me. Um, and it's uh, an account of those years. Um, it's uh, right now. It's it's. Uh, I finished writing it about uh, several months ago, and it's uh, out seeking mm. an agent, which uh, in search of a publisher. So, I've been sending it out to various agents, and we'll see what happens. So, um, I'm hoping that somebody will decide to take an interest in it and pitch it to a publisher. And who knows? Maybe a year or two from now, it'll be out, and uh, I can come back and talk about uh, where you can buy this book. But uh, who knows? It might be ten years. It might be twenty. In which case, I'm not sure I'll be here. But maybe you can plug it on my behalf, Nick. You know, if it comes out posthumously. <laughs> I'll 
Well, look, let's hope that you're still alive when it comes out. And I will plug it if you're not here. But no, I'd much rather just get you back on here and we can talk about it um, when it comes out. That would be that would be a better way. I think so is, too, it, is that hard not- being um, patient? Yeah. <laughs> is that difficult being patient with the whole process? Because I, I found that hard myself with with my book, um, you know, it, the, the process of getting it out there. Then once it was out there, I had, it was my first book I've ever done and I had expectations of, you know, I want it to do this and do that and then you're trying to promote it and then you're like, oh, well, I can't really control much of what's happening here and, you know, it, to sort of just allow it to happen. Is that hard? It's hard. And um, my first book of poems came out um, when I was uh, in my 50s. I've been writing for, so that was like 35 years after I started writing. Um, but then wow. in the, uh, in the 15 or so years since then, 10 more books have come out. So, um, it's, uh, they're all with small publishers. One is in, um, uh, the Mideast in, uh, Doha in, uh, but the others are in the United States. Um, so I'm patient and, uh, I'm used to rejection. I see rejection as a, as a kind of, um, merit when I send work out. Um, cause a lot of people give up. And I don't give up at all. You know, I can have hundreds of rejections for something and I'll keep sending it out if I believe in it. Now, I also revise it if I don't think that, uh, you know, it's working. But um, so patience, uh, I have to be patient because uh, there's no other solution. Either you be, you're patient or you give up. Um, or, or maybe you do something stupid. Um, I don't want to do something stupid yeah. by underselling myself. I've done it a few times. I realized, okay, that was a mistake. Don't be stupid. Be patient and um, see what happens. Um, we all look at the in terms of writers. We look at the ones who win the Pulitzer Prizes, the ones who win the bestsellers and stuff like that. But that's such, so few writers achieve that level of prominence. Most writers, um, you know, they, uh, they have, I don't want to say small lives. Our lives are huge. Our lives are big, but they don't acclaim, they don't acquire the thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of readers that, that do. And that's fine. Um, I think it'll find that uh, my, my work, you know, seems to find its audience somewhere along the line. It finds its readers. And I think that'll happen with the, uh, with the book too, it's at some point. It's only been going out for a few months now, so I'm patient. Next year, it'll yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I I think that's a great a great point, and I love what you're saying as well about rejection because that is really the only way that you can sustain doing anything in this area. And you know, a lot of in my field with a lot of actors, they you know, the rejection gets to you and you stop or you take it personally and you can't sustain it. The only way you can really have a sustained career is to look at the rejection as, you know, a stepping stone and you're getting, it's one step closer to where you want to go and not, not putting that pressure on it. You're just going to keep doing it forever. And cause like you said, if you look at it on a logical standpoint, um, you either have to do that process or not do it at all. What are you going to do? You know? So just, keep getting keep putting it out there and eventually something will happen we don't have to have i think patience is so important you know something i keep reminding myself as well <laughs> and, and i'm sure with acting as well the joy you get out of the process of doing it is um you know sometimes when something is published or something like that i don't know what the equivalent would be in acting i guess um but it's sort of like underwhelming compared to the actual creation of it when you're developing a character, perhaps when you're acting or doing your, if you're doing stand up, um, creating that is, is one thing. The buzz you get when performing it is another. Um, but uh, without the creation part, it doesn't happen. And that's, that's exactly where the, uh, where the beauty is. Yeah. Without the creation, it doesn't exist, does it? Mm-hmm. And, 
I think if, if somebody doesn't enjoy that part of it, then um, why are they doing and it? Wait. Oh, sorry. No, I, I was just saying if somebody doesn't enjoy that part of it, the creation part, why bother? <laughs> if they don't enjoy it, yeah, it's um, what's the point of doing it? Mm-hmm. And where, where can we send our listeners if they want to learn more about you or they want to, you know, have a look at your your books and everything else? Where can they go? Sure. I have uh, two websites. My personal website is peteremurphy.com. And there's a section on there where they can read some of my published work, both prose and poetry online. And there's also a section where it has my books and um, where they can buy them. And uh, I'll ship them all over the world. That's fine. And then the professional workshop I have is uh, Murphy Writing of Stockton University. And uh, the easy way to get to that is murphywriting.com. And that lists a lot of the workshops that we do, uh, not just in the United States. We do them online, of course, like everybody else these days, but also in Europe. Uh, we haven't been there since before COVID, and we hope to get back next year. But we've been running workshops for people that are beginning writers as well as people with a lot of experience. And uh, my goal when I lead a workshop is um, make it to be an ego-free ex- experience. That I don't care how much you've published or if you're writing for the first time. Everybody in the workshop is going to improve uh, in the time that we have together, whether it's, whether it's an afternoon or whether it's a week in Wales or in Spain or other places that we go. So that's what we do there. So at murphywriting.com, you can find out more about that. And we also have a lot of resources uh, on uh, on the website for writers. Uh, we run uh, free programs as well. We have one that runs every Wednesday night. Um, it's called The Write-In, and uh, it's a curated program where one of our uh, colleagues um, basically throws out a writing prompt online and people write for an hour. And at the end of the hour, they share what they wrote. And this is something that uh, we just love doing because it's something that um, mm. is uh, easy for us to do. It's free for people. Um, and we have people that, uh, that participate in this uh, from all over the world. So it's, it's a great way to do that. We have free programs we do locally here in New Jersey as well, which I'm not sure too many of your uh, listeners will be uh, if you're, will be able to come. But um, who knows? Maybe we'll do We haven't been to Australia. Maybe we'll go to Australia sometime. <laughs> We're looking to expand. You've got to get you over to Australia at some point. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. And and for anyone, for everyone listening, we'll also, we'll put the link to um, to your website in the show notes. So if you want to look up any of Peter's work, the link will be um, in the notes of, of the show. So please go on that, have a look, buy his books and um, support what he's doing. So we we finish every episode with five closing questions. These can be, um, short answers, just whatever comes to mind. So, um, they're, they're sort of just five quick closing questions, but the first one is, uh, what, what did you like most about your childhood? <laughs> my imagination, I think my imagination, cause I was, I had a lot of, um, I lived inside my head as a kid. So I would say that. Yeah. Great. Lo- that's great. Yeah. What, what do you think is the biggest burden on mental health in society at the moment? The um, stig- the uh, what's the word? Not stigmatism. That's the eye disease. The um, the fear that people will judge judge you, and um, the fear of getting help because of that, and uh, also the fear that whatever help you get won't work. I think these are three things. In the United States, we have a particular one: is just can't afford it. Um, it you know we don't have the uh, the uh, medical capacity that other countries have. I believe in Australia, you have a, it's easier. So the United States, that's a big one too. I have a number of friends that have been, you know, particularly during COVID trying to get help 
Yeah. And uh, yep. they can't afford it. So that's a big one here. That was just too many, too many of, few, of a few words, but yeah. Stigma. That's the word I was looking for, the stigma. No, that's, that's good. I agree with you. No, I think it's a great answer, right? And I, I really do agree. Um, what, what would you say is your personal definition of happiness? Ah, it's when I'm sharing. Um, when I'm teaching writing, when I'm writing, that's for me what it is. It's fulfilling. Um, you know, I wish I, <laughs> I could say, oh, being with my family, being with my grandson, being with Southfield, that too. But, you know, it's to me, it's the idea of creating something and then sharing it with others. That's, that's how it works for me. That's beautiful. Uh, but I, you know what, I, I love it that what you're doing and what you've been doing for your whole life pretty much and what you're doing even now is the thing that brings you the biggest source of happiness. That's amazing. I mean, how many people can actually say that? There's not, not a lot. So it's, it's such an incredible thing. I'm very lucky. So I've got two more here. Yeah, no, it's a, I think it's fantastic. Um, I've, I've got two more here. What, what would you say, what, what are you most afraid of? Hmm. Dying, of course, even uh, because it's such a big unknown. Um, being greedy and that I want to live as much as I can, as long as I can, without a debilitating disease at the end. So that's what it would be. Uh, my stepmother recently died of uh, Alzheimer's, and uh, the last few years of her life were difficult for everybody. So I would say that's my big fear right now, is um, being in a position where um, I'm not able to take mm -hmm. care of myself and being a burden on others. Uh, that's it. Yeah. And and final one, what would you say you're most proud of? My daughter. What a fine human being she is. Um, uh, so a shout out to Amanda um, Compass, Amanda Murphy Compass, who um, is a great human being. She's a, a terrific servant. She's a wonderful mother. She's a great daughter who's constantly trying to get me to improve my life, uh, even at this point. So I think I'm most proud of her. Um, if I did nothing else in my life, um, that would be enough to go by. She she just... We did good work, my wife and I. Beautiful. Well, no, thank you so much for sharing, Peter, and thank you for coming on. It's been, I'm sure our listeners are going to get so much value out of hearing this interview. Uh, again, for anyone listening, please check out his work. He's incredibly talented. And, uh, yeah, I feel really lucky to have you on here. So thank you again. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. Thanks to Peter Murphy for joining me today for Move Your Mind. And just a reminder that the Move Your Mind book can now be found globally at nickbrax.com slash book. And you can also join the Move Your Mind community at moveyourmind.me. And we've also released Underbrax. We're donating a dollar from every pair to mental health, currently to one in five. And you can find that at www.underbrax.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 